Good morning, sojourners and exiles. We're going to continue our study this morning in the uh, biblical theology of Babylon. Let's pray before we uh, begin, and we're going to be in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 today. We've been moving through the biblical theology of Babylon. We've looked at Assyria, we've looked at Babylon, we've uh, looked at these kings and kingdoms and how all of these are instruments in God's hand. And we've um, seen the uh, message of Jeremiah beginning to, uh, to come to fruition. We talked last week about the uh, yoke of wood and the yoke of iron. We know uh, through what God tells us in history that uh, Judah took door number, <laughs> door number two and they opted for the yoke of iron, and they uh, had to pay heavy consequences for their unfaithfulness to the Lord, for their um, false religiosity, for their syncretism, for their disobedience. And because of that, the, uh, the yoke of iron, the famine, the pestilence, and the being taken into exile was a, a very real consequence that the people of Judah had to endure. And uh, we're going to begin actually uh, looking at Second Kings chapter 24, and we'll read uh, 10 through 17, and we'll, we'll see... Um, one of the, the second waves of exiles happening. Um, God's people were taken progressively from Jerusalem. Uh, in 605 B.C., there was a major exile, and that included uh, the young man Daniel. And this passage that we're going to read here in Second Kings is around 597 B.C., and it's a significant wave of, of exiles yet again that included uh, a king of Judah who was taken into Babylon. And it also probably included a young man uh, by the name of Ezekiel, who would later be called to have a prophetic ministry amongst the exiles. And so it's, a, it's in this context that we'll be looking today at life in exile. Um, we had a, a PowerPoint snafu. I apologize for that. But the title of this week's message is Life in Exile. So uh, 2 Kings chapter 24, 10 and on. At that time, when the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and all the smiths, None remained except the poorest people of the land, and he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So that's our context. We know that uh, Babylon has taken away these masses of people. They've taken some of the most influential, some of the most gifted, um, some of the most skilled from Jerusalem, have taken them to Babylon. What they left behind, in a sense, is uh, sort of smoldering ruins and some of the poorest people of the land. Among those people left behind was Jeremiah himself. Jeremiah was left in uh, the ruined, besieged city. And uh, as the weeping prophet who cared so much for the people of Jerusalem, he continued his prophetic ministry to his countrymen who were in captivity. And so we're going to find ourselves today looking at life in exile and looking at a letter that Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. So we'll be uh, in Jeremiah chapter 29, 1 through 14. 
And we're going to make a couple of different observations about life in exile that I believe and pray will be very applicable for us today. The first um, aspect of life in exile is that under the system, and we've defined Babylon as we've kind of gone, it's everything that's impressive by human standards and opposed to God. Any system that is opposed to God is, is by our definition, life in Babylon. And so Babylon is characterized by difficulty. We're going to read the first uh, portion of Jeremiah's letter and then kind of recap with the view in mind that life in captivity is difficult. 29 verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials from Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The events we just read about in 2 Kings. This was... The, the letter was sent by the hand of Elsa, the son of Shapan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat your produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. We'll stop there for a moment. What the people of Judah experienced in Babylon was very distinct from what they knew in Jerusalem. The culture was different. The language was different. The system was different. We know that their names were changed from Hebrew names to names that had significance to the Chaldeans of uh, of being pagan names. Um, God's people were being subjected to an evil system. And uh, I have to say that as my family is going through this process of um, uh, readjusting to to life in uh, Honduras, and, and that's what our objective is, we kind of make these comparisons as a family. Well, what's Babylon? Is San Diego Babylon? <laughs> is Honduras Babylon? On one hand, you've got a place where the uh, murder capital is the highest in the Western Hemisphere, and in another place you have coexist sticker, stickers and complete godlessness. Which is Babylon? And biblically speaking, it's all Babylon. On this side of eternity, it's all Babylon. It doesn't matter where you are. Each place has a different pattern of sin, a different oppressive system. But while the work of Christ was finished on the cross, we are aware biblically that Satan is the prince of the power of the air and still has his system in place. We know that those days are numbered, but in the meantime, we live in that system. And um, I have been um, convicted as a believer that oftentimes looking um, at Southern California, this whole last year, we've been seeing things through a different lens being here. It's very easy to look at the whole place and say, this is Babylon. This place is, uh, pardon the expression, but going to hell in a handbasket, right? I mean, that's what we see in the society all around us. And it's very easy to sort of take on a, a fatalistic view and think, oh man, things just keep getting from bad to worse. But the reality is, if we look at things scripturally, it's been Babylon since the fall. Nothing has, has, uh, has changed necessarily. Um, we have been uh, placed in this system very intentionally, but it's characterized by difficulty. 
I want to share with you a quote from a, a book that my family's done as a devotional. It's called Thriving in Babylon. Uh, I can't recommend necessarily all of the uh, theology of this particular pastor, but there's some really great applications from the book of Daniel that help us understand what it's like to live in Babylon. I'm going to read you just a quote um, to help us kind of contextualize and apply. <coughs> it says, Babylon was known for its demonic influences. The state-sponsored religion was satanic, and the core curriculum in the schools of higher learning included a large dose of astrology in the occult. In order to prepare for service to the king, Daniel and his three friends, fellow exiles, were forced to complete a rigorous three-year study program. It consisted of learning the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, which means that it was designed to certify them as enchanters and mu- magicians and experts in the dark practices of the occult. The author says, Now I live in California, often called the land of fruit and nuts. Our legislature has passed some bizarre laws. Our courts have made some strange decisions. Our schools have introduced some weird curricula. But I guarantee on the worst day in the worst class with the worst teacher, my kids were never exposed to anything as godless and flat-out demonic as the standard curriculum in Daniel's classroom. Not even close. None of my kids have had to get a degree in the occult in order to land a good job. Isn't that an interesting context? We were so often um, overwhelmed by what we see going on around us. That's been the same since the time of Daniel, since the time of Jeremiah, since the time of the exile. I'm going to read a little, bit, uh, a little bit more here. It says, To make matters worse, exile was fiercely hostile to the f- spiritual values that Daniel and his friends held dear. One of the things that they had to endure was a name change. Daniel means God is my judge. His Babylonian captors immediately changed it to Belshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Bel was the title for their demonic god, Marduk. The Lord used it the Babylonians used it much in the way that we use the title Lord to speak of our God. It would be like having your name from, changed from Christian to Satan's prince. The last part I'll read here says, Daniel also had to deal with something that none of my Sunday school teachers ever told me about. Daniel and his friends suffered the indignation of castration. They were turned into eunuchs. So all of that, looking at life in exile, it's characterized by by difficulty. It's characterized by the world, the system in which we live, wanting to change our identity from Christ follower to a follower of the prince of the power of the air. And so um, in that context, it's helpful for us to remember that as um, oppressive as the system in which we live uh, is, that system has a shelf life. That Christ, through what he did on the cross, is going to bring that time of exile to a close. And so we can praise God for that. The second thing that uh, I want to call out with looking at life in exile is that it's um, a life characterized by longing to be done with exile. Um, Psalm 137. Let's go there together real quick. Psalm 137 is a unique psalm. It's uh, included in the um, uh, psalm that was very likely post-exilic. So it was probably sung by people as they were coming back out of Babylon and and reestablishing themselves again in Judah, but flashing back to how things were for them during their time in exile. And it's powerful words. Uh, It's actually been used in a number of uh, both Christian and secular songs. It's, It's a beautiful poem, if you will. 137, Psalm 137 says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we, lung our, we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my, left hand forget it, let my right hand forget its skill. 
Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, and how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. The beginning of this talks about how they sat by the rivers in Babylon, how they sat by the waters and and they were mocked. Tell us about your God. Sing us about Zion. Tell us about all that. And that's very real in the world in which we live today. Our faith as followers of Christ is quite easily mocked. If you've read uh, some of the social commentaries and uh, social media and blog comments on, on world events, the comments against Christianity are growing increasingly harsh. That's the reality in which we see ourselves. And so uh, these exiles talked about how in Babylon they were, they were forced in a mocking way. Tell us about your God, right? And in this sense of longing to be done with exile, the people of Judah um, revealed a little of their, their flesh in uh, the last verses of this, um, this song. It says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. This is a a very vivid and violent picture. We're literally talking about throwing babies against boulders. I mean, you can't even imagine anything so horrendous, but the Babylonians did that to the people that they conquered. And so um, in uh, Mosaic law, this whole idea of a a like retribution, the people of Judah are like, man, when is somebody going to do this to the people of Babylon? When is the system done? When can we be done with this system? And so that characteristic longing is something that we see those exiles um, praying for, wanting justice, wanting that system to come to an end. But in the midst of that, what we see in Jeremiah chapter 29 is a rebuke to some of that mentality. Um, some of that mentality that instead of um, a loathing for the system, a love and a compassion for those who are in, ca- in that place of captivity with them. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 29. What we see here is a message for how those in exile ought to live. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat your produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Look at this message. While you're in captivity, while you're in exile, go about your business. Multiply. Let your your populations grow so that... um, my renown as, as your God will be evident. We saw that happen in Egypt, right? That was the problem. Pharaoh was like, oh my goodness, there are more Jews. <laughs> Their population is huge. Their cities are bigger than what we've got. Something's got to be done here. God's people grew in number and became a force that affected the society in which they were enslaved in Egypt. And now God's telling the people in Babylon to do the exact same thing. Grow in numbers. Grow. Go about your business. Do things in a way that it's going to feel like 
they were back home in Jerusalem. Bring a bit of Zion to Babylon, if you will. That's what he's saying. What's interesting about the ESV translation of this word, uh, seek the welfare of the city that you live in, this really echoes what we see in one of the Psalms of, of Ascent, which is Psalm uh, 122. In uh, Psalm 122, it would have been a song that the people of Israel would have known well uh, in perhaps singing it as they would go into the house of the Lord. And it talks about praying for the shalom or the peace of Jerusalem. And that word shalom is actually the same as what we see here in praying for the welfare. So you can kind of switch that around in your mind. Think welfare, think peace, think shalom. Those are, are this, the same word. Um, Psalm 122, um, I'll read 6 through 9. It says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. What Jeremiah is saying in his letter is, Remember that prayer we talked about for the peace of Jerusalem? Pray that for Babylon too. That's really powerful. That's, that's um, a place that the people of, of Judah would have wanted to hate. That would have been a place not their home. And God's saying, no, I want you to be interested in their welfare and their shalom. And as such, be a visible part of that society where you're living in, captive, in captivity. And that's uh, hugely applicable for us. Um, I know that uh, we all have joked about the, the average family size at Pacific Hope. Um, but praise God for that. That really is a biblical precedent, and that really is a way in which we impact the society in which we live. Having um, strong families with uh, lots of kids and lots of grandkids and, and lots of, of uh, the next generation that will be a part of singing God's praises is a part of how we influence the place where God has placed us in exile. So there's a word of encouragement. Keep having those kids. Um, <clears throat> The, uh, the context here, too, of, of seeking the welfare of the city is very interesting. And um, I have to see in, in, in many ways that um, God's economics, um, God has provided um, w- jobs and he has provided uh, ways for uh, his people to be productive in the society where he's placed us. And all of that is ultimately for the good and for the extension of his kingdom. And uh, that's very important. When the companies that we work for do well, it allows us to invest in the kingdom. There's a correlation between the, the prosperity and the well-being of the system where we're placed and how we then participate in God's kingdom. The other thing that um, we have to look at in this letter to the Babylonians is that in their longing to be out of the system, he also gives his promise and a message of hope that things are going to, to come around and that um, exile, the days of exile, the days are numbered. Let's go back to Jeremiah 29. In uh, verse 8 and 9, there's the warning that the false prophets who are in Babylon and saying, hey, the hard times are almost over. That's not true. There's still generations, if you will, that will endure under this heavy yoke of Babylon. But, verse 10 God says, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, 
and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That verse is one of my favorites. Um, it shows up on a lot of graduation cards and wedding notes and Hallmark and this and that and the other. And it's a verse that's really taken out of context. Um, the plans I have for you is a collective you. It's not written to one particular person. It's written to this entire group of people, and these are people who are in exile. These are people who are going through a very difficult time, and it's not going to be a short-lived difficult time. It says, after 70 years are completed. How would you like to get this message of God's uh, great plans for you at the tender young age of 70, <laughs> knowing that all of these plans that God has for collective you, you will never see? Right? This is a, a long-term plan. Right now, God's plan is that his people are chastened, that his people are disciplined, and that they're under the, the system of the Babylonians. But in time, in God's time, in God's sovereign plan, they'll be taken out of that system. And that is part of God's plan, his future and his hope. And more than that, it's a future and hope of having the relationship with him as their God perfectly restored. It's not plans for prosperity, it's not plans for comfort. It's not plans for having a really nice pad back in Jerusalem. It's a plan for reestablishing um, an intimate relationship with his people. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place where I have sent you into exile. Rich words of promise that the exiles must certainly have been um, intrigued to hear and to understand. So, recapping, the first thing that we know about life in exile is that it's difficult. It's, um, it's an oppressive system. The second thing that we know that is that it, it's, it's natural to long to see the system overthrown and to see things restored. But the third thing that I really want to challenge us with this morning is that the exile is missional. The exile is, is purposeful. God sent his people there. I want to read a quote to you, um, but before I do, um, there are some folks in the room here who are much more uh, read scholars than I am, but what I understand is that the Septuagint is a um, Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the word that is used to describe what's happening to the Jewish people is diaspora, this idea of dispersion. The Jewish people, um, both during the Assyrian time and the Babylonian time, were, were spread out. They were taken from where they had as their home in Jerusalem and moved to Babylon. And that verb, diaspora, or to, to uh, scatter, is also the same word that's used to sow seeds. So as you look at this, God is not just um, kicking his people out as punishment. He's also spreading them out and sowing them as if they were seeds, which is a really powerful um, analogy. Um, I want to read to you from uh, my um, Philip Ryken book here that uh, Pastor John gave me years ago. And uh, this is a, a really neat quote as Ryken describes why God has his people in exile. It says, God practically sounded like the ad man for Babylonian realty. Anyone who has tried to buy a house knows how realtors tend to exaggerate. Charming, the ad will say, which means the house is roughly the size of a phone booth. Needs work translates as, bring your own wrecking ball. Imagine the reaction when Jeremiah's prophecy was read in the, Jew in the Jewish ghetto in Babylon. Just imagine, if you will, like a, a ghetto, like all the, the slaves, the people that were brought to Babylon, they're not living in the, the hanging gardens, right? They're living in 
you know, uh, less than adequate conditions. It says, imagine when Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah's letter was read by the, Jewish, the people in the Jewish ghetto in Babylon. There God's people were, languishing in captivity, bemoaning their fate, complaining about the crime rate and the wretched school system. But God gave them the hard sell. You're going to love this place. Great place to, lead a, to raise a family. Wonderful opportunity for small business. Great location, right in the heart of the Fertile Crescent. One senses God's passion for urban planning, which is a passion of Rikens. Yet he was talking about the city of Babylon of all places. His surprising plan for the redemption of the city meant building the city of God smack dab in the middle of the city of man. Listen to this part. No doubt when the captives discussed their sojourn in Babylon, they used words like abandoned or banished or condemned to describe what God had done to them. But this is not how God saw things. He viewed exile as a mission. Literally, what he said was, Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have sent you. Nebuchadnezzar did not take them to Babylon. God sent them there. The exiles were not captives. They were missionaries. And that is an incredible interpretation of what we see in um, God's view of why his people were sent to Babylon. What we see in this letter from Jeremiah to the people is telling them, build houses and live in them. Go about your business. Have families. Raise families. Be a part of the society so that they will see and identify you as the people of, of the Lord. And um, that is uh, incredibly powerful, and the application for us as we live life in exile is, is huge there. We might bemoan the system. We might want to be um, back in, uh, in Zion, so to speak. We, you know, like so many believers, we talk about you know, this whole idea of, uh, of so heavenly-minded they're of no earthly good, right? Like so fixed on, on being with the Lord in eternity that our attitude can often be one of simply complaining about the situation in the world around us. But what we see in this letter from Jeremiah is that their time in Babylon isn't time wasted. It's purposeful time. Um, the um, prophet Ezekiel, who was a, a messenger um, that God called to preach to the exiles, had some interesting things um, to say about his call. One of the verses that um, I've come to, to love talks about his uh, mission to the people of Israel in Babylon. But at the same time, he was given the opportunity to testify of the Lord to those pagan unbelievers. Let's go, I think um, it's in Ezekiel chapter 3. Um, this is the beginning of Ezekiel's prophetic ministry. Chapter 3, I'll, I'll start with um, verse 4. Again, keeping in mind that Ezekiel's in Babylon. So Daniel's sending a letter. Ezekiel's actually there. And in the midst of Babylon, um, God's people still need to be uh, chastened. Here's what uh, this verse says. Um, verses 4 and on. He said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all of the house of Israel have a f hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their hearts. Sorry, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. But what we see there is a really interesting um, message where God says, I'm sending you to the other Hebrews. I'm sending you to the people of Judah, and they're not going to listen to you. But if I would have sent you to the people of difficult language, meaning the Chaldeans, surely they would have listened. 
And what we see throughout the, the narrative of time in Babylon is that God did change hearts of the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar himself, the, the tyrant that had his heavy hand on the people of Babylon, was driven crazy by his defiance and his pride before the Lord, and would later um, institute worship of Yahweh, worship of Jehovah. God changed the hearts of the Babylonians. Those people in that system um, were not viewed in such a way that they were incapable of repentance, but rather God had them there to bring about um, a repentance. And so I think that's uh, very interesting for us to under, understand that Ezekiel is, is uh, being told to minister to the people of, of Israel in captivity, but also that the people that he was uh, surrounded by would be influenced by his message. This, uh, this letter, this promise in Jeremiah chapter 29 is full of new covenant references. We know that... Um, we will, uh, we're just a chapter or two away from the new covenant and the promises of all that God is going to bring about through Jesus Christ and um, how his, his kingdom will be reestablished. And when uh, the people will be brought out of exile to Zion, it's not only pointing to that short-term time when uh, Cyrus sets the, the Jews free and sends them back to Jerusalem, but it also points to New Jerusalem. It also points to that time where we will be freed as people once and for all from our exile, from our enslavement to this system, to be with Christ in perfect community with him. And when we read that verse 11, that's ultimately what we need to have in mind. Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, don't write it on a graduation card unless you understand the long-term view, the long view of what's happening here. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not to evil, to give you a future and a hope. That future and a hope was realized through Jesus Christ. We're in the, the already not yet. We know that's in view. We know that exile is drawing to a close. These, uh, these exiles in Babylon knew that after 70 years, the situation was going to change. Right now for us, we don't know how many years our exile will last. God could take us home in a car wreck today. Um, we don't know what God has for us for the remaining years of, uh, of our time in this exile. But what we do know is that exile is drawing to conclusion. And when that happens, we will be with Christ. We will be not only sanctified, but also glorified. So in the meantime, as we are here in exile, my encouragement to you is to not be fatalistic about the view, right? This is a, a light and momentary trouble. That's what it is. And also as we... Um, are here, don't long for God's vindication. Don't long for God's destruction of our, of our enemy, but pray for their salvation. Be missional. God has us here as missionaries in Babylon. That's my um, encouragement as we, as we continue to understand what it is that God wants for us as his people. Next week, the last week of the series, we'll be, seeing, we'll be looking at freedom from exile. We know that that's coming. We know that that will be set free, and we'll see some of the people from um, Babylon going back to Zion and have that as a picture of what God has in store for us as his people. Let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to help us um, live as good exiles. Actually, I want to end with this verse. Let's look at one verse, and we'll end. This is a, a really great verse for us to meditate on all week this week. Peter, in First um, Peter chapter 2, Verse 11 and 12 says this, Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that then when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation.
That's it right there. How's that for application? Thank you, Peter.